Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you reach your people through your word by the mystery of preaching. That you use weak and incapable people. You take men who study with a lack of understanding, who are biased by sin and distracted by the world, and yet you call them and you ask them to preach your word to your people. Who could measure up to that task, Father? And yet, by the mystery of preaching, Father, as that process takes hold, you speak to hearts. Your word makes an impression. And even if the words that I speak, Father, are not yours and are completely wrong, somehow, in what you are able to do through the mystery of your spirit and the hearts of believers, is turn what is said into what should have been said. Thank you, Father, that you do that. (laughs) For who could bear to stand to your judgment for anything less? We ask, Father, that this morning your word is preached by the Spirit of God in the hearts of those gathered by your power to hear that word. And we ask, Father, that what is said will be received as from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for anyone who may not have been following our study, or even if you have been, let me just remind you where we've been in this procession through Matthew. We're at the end of chapter 16. Last week we were stopping right about verse 20. And that's where Jesus commanded his disciples, as you remember, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. And remember how surprising that statement was, because we had just come out of this moment of Peter's bold confession of faith. And we saw last week how that serves as a model for the church, that Peter was effectively showing us the way in which Jesus would build his church. And after he does that, then Jesus, in turn, looks at Peter and says, you're going to preside over the outward movement of the church in its initial years, turning the three keys of the kingdom. We talked about that last week. You know, that was such a breakthrough moment, wasn't it? There you have the confession of the church being put out by Peter, the church itself being established by that method, and then Jesus saying, here we go, guys. We're ready now to conquer the world. Peter, you lead the charge outward. And so you'd expect, naturally, after that kind of a moment, there would have been a, a, as I think I said last week, you would have seen Jesus say, okay, guys, everybody, come on, let's get in here. And they would have gone, one, two, three, Jesus! And then they would have run out and evangelized the world, right? That's what you'd expect. And yet, not so fast. Because as, as soon as that moment ended, you have in verse 20, Jesus saying, you guys cannot go out and say anything about what you just learned. That's his strategy. Not yet, anyway. And here's why he did that. Because if those guys had gone out right then and there with what they knew, they would have been doing it wrong. How do I know that? Well, they would have been operating out of ignorance, which is to say they would have been carrying the wrong message to the wrong group of people at the wrong time. Think about it. They would have gone out and declared to their people, to Israel, that their Messiah had come, they've seen him, they know him, and that the kingdom now is available to Israel. That's what they would have said. But that message has already gone out. And as you remember back in chapter 12, Israel's leaders rejected it. And so as a result, there is no time for Israel. Not now, not in that age. The time for persuading Israel to receive their king is over, at least for now. And as a result, Jesus has shifted his ministry away from convincing Israel to receive a kingdom and toward the preparation of his disciples to launch a kingdom program. The program now being a recruitment of citizens from out of the world to become citizens of a kingdom yet to appear. That's where we are now. They didn't understand that. They would have gone to the wrong audience with the message. Secondly, in the changing of the audience, there is also now by necessity a change in the message to a degree. Where before it was receive, repent and receive your king, repent and receive the kingdom, the kingdom is at hand, that was the original message. Now the message is going to be repent and receive salvation By believing in Christ, by the name given for salvation, Christ. Now that message could only be received by the world after Jesus' death and resurrection and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last week when we looked at the keys of the kingdom. So if these guys had gone out to the world now, even let's say, for example, that they knew they had to go to Gentiles. Let's give them that. They didn't, but let's assume they did. Even if they had gone out to the Gentile world, no one would have received their message until... 
the Holy Spirit was out there turning the keys of the kingdom through Peter, as we studied last week. So they would have been going to the wrong group with the wrong message, and they'd have been going too early at the wrong time. In effect, what they'd be doing is trying to do this in their own will, their own power, because of what they thought they knew. So Jesus understood that they had these things wrong, of course, and that's why he tells them, whoa, guys, not yet. Don't go telling anyone about me yet. And now he goes to explaining why. We understand. Let me show you how they get taught. It starts in verse 21. And in verse 21 he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. All right, well, stopping there. So Matthew says, from this moment, Jesus began to explain about why this delay was necessary. And it comes down to four points. He gives these guys a four-point outline of what's coming Now, this is the first time he's ever revealed to them these kinds of details. This is the first time he's told these men the bigger plan. Now, there have been a few earlier moments in the gospel where he's alluded to these things. You may remember back in earlier chapter, in chapter 12, when he talked about the sign of Jonah. He said that no sign would be given to Israel any longer except the sign of Jonah, which then he goes on to say, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That's an allusion to his death and to his resurrection after three days. We know that. They didn't know that. So in reality, this is the first time he said it plainly. This is news to them. Big news. But this is also not the moment they get it. This is just the start. This is the beginning of an educational process for these guys. It's going to take a while. In fact, if you have read through the Gospels, if you've read the book of Acts, you realize just how clueless these guys were. And it's easy to pick on them. I don't think we would have done any better. All I'm saying is, you've got to walk with them through this process as we study and realize just how hard it was for them to take this turn and understand what the plan was. And he gives it to them in this four-part outline, I think, because when you're at the beginning of something like this, you have to break it down, keep it simple, start with the big points. What are those points? Well, he says, first of all, his ministry will end in Jerusalem. That everything is headed there. Look, this is the least surprising point in the outline. If you had told those guys, hey, did you know that the Messiah's ministry ultimately ends in Jerusalem? They would have said, no, duh, of course. Because they're expecting him to go into the city, reigning triumphantly, sitting on the seat of David, or that's a term in the scripture for the throne, the right to rule Israel as king. They're expecting all of that. And they know that according to scripture, there's only one place in which the seat of David, the throne of David exists, and that is in Jerusalem. So to tell him or to tell them that he is going to end up in the city of Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, no surprise. What is a surprise, though, is that he's not going to end up in that city as a reigning king. He's going to end up in that city rejected. And because he's rejected, the kingdom itself is delayed by, well, now two millennia going on until whenever God appoints. So here's what you're learning. The first earthly ministry of Messiah, his first coming, is going to end in Jerusalem one way or the other. I mean, we could, ask, we could sort of say it this way. Theoretically, if Israel had received their king as such, then he would have gone to Jerusalem because he would have still had to end there. But here's what he would have done. He would have walked into Jerusalem telling his people who were then receiving him as king, by the way, there's another step before we can have the kingdom. I need to die. And then having died, he would have resurrected. Then having resurrected, he would have entered into the kingdom and so would everyone else. That is to say, nothing would have changed that aspect of the plan. The only issue is what comes after that. And he's saying it's got to have to go to Jerusalem and die. Another way to say it very simply is, just as the king of Israel must reign from Jerusalem, the Passover lamb must be sacrificed in Jerusalem. That leads to the second step in the outline. He says, when I get there, I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the leaders of Israel. And in Mark's account, he says specifically that he's going to be rejected by those leaders, which is why he then suffers. Remember back in chapter 12, the Pharisees had already rejected the claims Jesus made in that time, and they were trying to persuade the crowd at the moment to go along with them and reject Jesus. And some did. But a lot of others had still seen things in Jesus that they admired or that they liked. Some believed in him even. 
And as a result, that crowd continues to follow him all the way down into Jerusalem. You, you probably know already when we get to that part of the gospel, the day we often call Palm Sunday, that's a day in which he's being adored by crowds as he walks in or rides into the city, right? So there's going to be crowds all the way to the very end. That's a threat to those men. And so as they see that continuing popularity, they conspire with the Romans. They look for a way to kill him. They've gone from simply discrediting to now murdering in order to get their way. And so that leads us to the third step. Jesus says, after suffering, I'm going to die. And more than that, I'm going to be killed. Uh, The Messiah's death, as I said, has always been a part of the plan. Because without a substitutionary atoning death, there can't be forgiveness. And without forgiveness, there's no entry into the kingdom. And so if God's going to create the kingdom that he's promised and put the people in it that he said he was going to put in it, there had to be the death of Messiah. It's always been part of the plan. So that is to say, even if they had been receiving him as king, he still would have died. It's just confusing to us to imagine how God would have done that. That is, how would he have taken Jesus being adorned and being loved by Israel and found a way to put him on a cross anyway? It's kind of pointless to speculate because clearly that was never the plan. In fact, it was the opposite. God intended to use his own people's hard heart and rejection of Messiah as the mechanism by which he would then put his Messiah on the cross for them and for us. God can do things in ways we could never imagine. And then finally in this outline, the fourth piece, probably the most surprising for these guys, he says, I'm going to resurrect, I'm going to come back to life after three days. His death wouldn't be the end of the story. Instead, it's actually going to be the beginning, the beginning of the kingdom program. So that is to say, until Messiah died, until he rose again, there was no good news. You see how out of touch these guys were? Again, I'm not making fun of them. I think we would have been in in similar circumstances. But just look at the gap for a moment. What is it they're declaring? That is, what is the kingdom program all about? The good news that someone's death paid the price of your sin. Right? At the heart of it, it's about a death. And then a resurrection to confirm that the death meant something. All right, well, they were prepared to go out and declare the good news before the good news. That was a powerless, fruitless message. That's how out of touch they were. And Jesus' outline then gives the basis for why they should not go without him. I want you to switch gears here with me and put yourselves back in their position for a moment. They have overheard Jesus giving keys to Peter. They have assumed, based on that, that the plan is now afoot. Hey, he's got keys. Let's go turn them. Let's go do what he's told us to do. But because they did not understand much, if anything, about the plan, they are not in a position to help Jesus whatsoever. Think about what they didn't know. They didn't know he was going to die. I mean, he, he said these things, I know, but they don't get it yet. So they don't know he's going to die. They don't know he's going to rise again. They don't understand the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost. They don't understand the 2,000 plus years of waiting that we have to experience. They don't understand that there's going to be this seismic shift from Jewish evangelism to Gentile evangelism. And they don't understand coming persecution. Just a short list. There's a lot more they don't know. They have none of that in their minds yet. They had some knowledge, yes, but they lacked much more than they had. This is the state of these guys. Now, I want you to think about that. And I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Are you in any different situation, fundamentally, than they were? That is to say, you all have some knowledge, yes, some more than others, sure. But do you understand God's plan? Let me think about it for a second. Knowing aspects of his plan and understanding his entire plan are two very different things. So how well do you understand God's plan for the whole world? Could you give me the details thoroughly right now? No. Could I? No. Well, let's break it down further. Could you tell me the full plan of God's intention for his church? I don't think so. How about his plan for this church? Probably not. How about his plan for your entire life? Do you realize how much you don't know? I mean, it's not a problem in the sense that you're supposed to know those things. No, you wouldn't know those things. What I'm saying, though, is I think it's easy, especially if we're a Bible church, especially if you're a Bible student, it's easy to start to think you know what you need to know, that you know enough, that we're we're kind of jettisoned from the mothership, 
self-contained with our knowledge and ready for whatever comes, and we only have to check back in once in a while with Jesus. I mean, we don't say that, but we, we can operate that way. There's so much more we don't know than that we do know. So here's my point. If we are all in the dark to some degree about what Jesus is doing, and frankly, to a large degree, then how do you respond to him in serving him out of that ignorance? What's the proper response? Think about these guys. They were so ignorant, they were ready to run out and do the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong group. Jesus said to them, you know what, guys? It's better if you do nothing. I would rather you do just stay right here, don't say a word, because that's better than you running out in ignorance. That was how Jesus looked at his people in that day. So, do we march out in our ignorance, assuming that we have it all together, or at least it'll all just work out? And I think when you look at the answer from what he does here, the answer should be more in keeping with what you read in Isaiah, which is to be still and know that I am the Lord. You know, wait. Let me show you. How do finite, ignorant people serve an infinite, omniscient God? Well, it's actually easier than it sounds, and there's only one way to do it. Just do what he tells you to do when he tells you to do it, and nothing more. Now, at this point, I know what some, if not all of you, were thinking. You're, you're saying, how do you know what he wants? You know, that's an interesting statement. How do you know what he wants? You know, there's a lot of Christians who'll say, I, I, I hear people say this all the time. You hear from Jesus? God told you, God told you to do this? God told you? I never hear that. He doesn't talk to me. Do you realize that when you say that, what you're saying is, your listening skills need development? Because Christians do hear from Jesus all the time. Not audibly, no, I'm not talking about that. It doesn't have to be. What I'm saying is, people in every walk of life as Christians are making decisions based on how the Lord is impressing something on their heart, and they feel that confidence, they make that decision. Yeah, there may be a little bit of in, you know, uh, uh, doubt, or a little bit of uncertainty, but they feel certain enough to make a decision. And then in hindsight, quite often, the Lord comes along and confirms for us what we did was what He wanted, and we feel that assurance, and we know we did the right thing, and so on. If you're lacking that experience, friends, that is simply a sign that you have some work to do in your development of that relationship with Jesus. It's not a sin. I'm not saying you're bad. What I'm saying is that's something you should want for. That is an opportunity that's waiting for you. And if you've met other Christians who have that attitude, they talk about this experience, and you feel like they're weird and different, and you're not in the club, you know what? They're different, and you're not in the club. It's a club you want to be in. It's a club of maturity. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm saying that as a Christian... That's a degree of maturity. That's a process of listening. That's an experience-based growth that comes out of learning and working with Jesus. So, and if you ask me, we'll get more specific, Steve. I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't already heard. Because this, it's not some secret formula. It's going to come down to basic things. If you set aside time daily for prayer, for studying His Word, and for fellowship with other believers, you will hear from Jesus. In the course of your... Walking with him, you will hear from him. And look, don't overlook that third one. I think the first two are sort of self-evident, but the third one often gets overlooked. If you think listening to this stuff online is the same thing as going to church, you're missing something huge in your walk with Jesus. It's fine to catch up. It's fine when you're just supplementing. I get it. That's why we do it. But it's not the same thing as church. And sitting in this room listening to me, it's a part of the process, but it's not enough alone. The issue here is that when you spend time with others who are perhaps a little further down that walk than you are, you learn from them. You learn things you don't learn otherwise. That's why the body's supposed to gather. That's why the writer of Hebrews is critical of the church in his day when he says, some have forsaken the gathering. It's a bad thing to do that. You're missing out. The bigger point is this. If you have those routines... Good things come out of it. Growth, maturity, which then leads to you being able to follow a God in a plan that you have no clue about so that you're participating with Him and you're growing through it. If you fall out of those routines, then you become a little bit more like these men. You're armed with a little bit of info, but you're clueless about the big picture and you're probably more dangerous to yourself and others than you are helpful to Jesus. It's just the nature of the problem. Now, if you've never established those patterns in the first place, if this is all really not who you are as a believer then let me encourage you. You have a world to experience that is waiting for you. And in the meantime, you're probably spinning your wheels. If you've ever had that experience as a Christian where it feels like you can't get traction, your life is sort of the way it is and it's not getting better, and all the Christianese doesn't seem to fix it, and you feel yourself growing a little more cynical about it, take an inventory of your life 
The problem here is not Jesus. That's why Jesus gave his disciples this outline. Because although their ignorance was understandable, it was not desirable. They couldn't possibly understand everything that was being said on that day, no. But there were some details they needed to start to understand. And he begins to give that to them here. And as a result, they needed to stay close to him, to develop in that understanding. So that by the time he says, Sayonara guys, I'm going back to my father. It's yours now. I'll be working with you from up there, but let's get, let's get out there. They had some clue. That's how it works. This is our model. You know, the model we studied last week was the model of how the church will be built on the confession of faith. This is a model of how you follow Jesus. That is to say, never assume that you can walk with him based on what you already have. It's never enough. That's what we hear in John 15 when John talks about, Jesus talks about abiding in me, in the branches, abiding in the vine. You can do nothing apart from me. That's his whole point. There's never a point in which you cut the branch off and say, you're on your own now. Otherwise, there's no fruit. So you have to have in your heart this attitude that says, I'm going to pursue study of God's word forever. I always chuckle when someone says, if I tell them, hey, we're going to be studying the book of Revelation on Tuesdays. Would you like to come to that study? And the person will say, oh, I've already read that book. <laughs> this isn't a book club. It's not, it's not like it's a novel. I mean, <laughs> when I hear that, I just think, you poor soul. Because you don't even understand what study of the Bible is about. You think it's just some you know, knowledge process and you kind of flip through it and you're done. All right? It's a relationship with Jesus. You're sitting at his feet. That's the whole point. It never grows old. You never stop learning. All right? So pursuing study of the word is a matter of discipline. That's part of the job. You know what happens as you study and you learn? You grow. As you grow, you increase your opportunities to serve because you equip yourself. Or that's really the, the wrong way to say it because obviously the Spirit is equipping us. But the equipping process as it happens prepares you for greater service. And here's the thing you don't want to forget. It's not just greater service now. It's greater service in the kingdom. Because your spiritual maturity now is one of the measures, the Bible says, God uses in assigning you responsibility in the kingdom. So you're working not just for what you might gain now, you're working for the eternal benefits of it. And by work, I don't mean you're doing it in your own power, but I am saying you're yielding your desires to the desires of Christ in these things. So if you show yourself to be a diligent workman, approved by God for how you handle the word of truth, then as he reveals himself to you through that, he qualifies you to serve him in new and greater ways. And also, by the way, to put aside sins that may be holding you back in your life and causing you all a number of other problems. But if you try to work without him, well, you're likely to say the wrong things to the wrong people at the wrong time. And I'm an expert at that. And you'll miss opportunities. And here's the worst part. If we are intent on serving Christ out of ignorance and put no priority on growing out of it, do you know where we eventually end up? We end up working for the other side. Look at verse 22. Again, Peter took Jesus aside. You know, where angels fear to tread, Peter rushes in. And I love Peter. I mean, I know this guy because I just feel like I'm him. Uh, I would have been cast as Peter had I been available to Jesus back in that day because I'm the same way sometimes, and it's, it's a problem. Um, and if you kind of step back from Peter for a moment, it's not hard to understand why these guys would have been confused by the whole situation. Jesus just said he's going to die. That makes no sense. Who can kill the Messiah? Right? They're not understanding how that fits into the plan. They just see it as a problem, and to them it doesn't sound like a reasonable thing to even consider. In fact, how does a kingdom, or for that matter, a church, come into existence if the founding member dies before it's established? I mean, nothing makes any sense, humanly speaking. So I assume that's what all these guys are thinking. But thank God you had at least one of them willing to say it. Uh, for our sake, I'm saying. Because Peter speaks up in verse 22. Now, I think there's a connection here in this moment to what Peter experienced in the earlier moment. And that's really the heart of what's happening. I think without this, you lack... It's hard to understand what Peter was thinking. And here's the connection I'm talking about. In the earlier moment, when Peter's name was changed by Jesus, I want you to imagine how that must have felt if you had been Peter. Right? Imagine how he felt when Jesus says, Peter, you're a rock. In fact, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And I'm more than that, Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth, heaven's going to bind. What you loose on earth, heaven's going to loose. I mean, look, he didn't understand most of what was just said, I get it, but it sure sounded impressive, didn't it? 
I mean, guys, I don't know what just happened, but I think I'm in charge. Right? I mean, he's feeling privileged, he's feeling special, he's feeling important. I'm not, I'm trying not to be unfair to Peter because I don't think that Peter is somehow, you know, the, the bad guy here so much so as just the patsy. <laughs> He's, he's what we would do. It's just the nature of pride. And so if Peter let this thing go to his head a little bit, and I wonder if that may have happened, then at the next thought, when Jesus says he's going to die, Peter thinks, you know what, I can advise Jesus on this a little bit. And Matthew starts, and I love the scene. I love to imagine this because it's so much more remarkable when you can imagine the, the seeing of it. Because it starts with Peter taking Jesus aside from the rest of the group. I mean, what, well, there's only one reason why you take someone aside like that. It's because you want to save that person from embarrassment as you correct them. Can you imagine this scene? Jesus says, and I'm going to have to die. And there's Peter in the group. He's like, okay, Jesus, why don't we come over here for a second? I mean, wow. And think about Jesus' response to that. He's like, oh, this is going to be good. Come on, let's go see. Who does this? I mean, it's so easy to laugh at them in retrospect, I know. But it's kind of like when your spouse says to you, Honey, can I see you in the kitchen? You know, right after you say something at the dinner table, and you're like, What? What did I say? I don't know what I did. All right, so he first starts by pulling Jesus aside. And I love the fact that Jesus goes with him. All right, and then Matthew says Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, the word in Greek for rebuke, it could be translated censure, or it could be translated sternly warn. You need to know that. You know, there's two ways to handle this moment. You could say, Jesus, I... I just, I don't know if you meant that, but I I think you ought to think about, that's kind of the kind, soft way. That's not what happened. Jesus gets rebuked. And you can hear it in the tone. God forbid, Jesus. That's not going to happen. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how loud he was, but it's in that sense. Rebuked. And I find it interesting that Peter says, God forbid, Lord. All right? That, That statement is humorous because it's paradoxical. Right? Moments earlier, this is the same guy saying, Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Christ. And when you say that, what you're saying is, you have divine authority, divine power. That's what he said. And then a few seconds later, he's saying, that divine being is getting it wrong. And that that divine being needs the divine being to forbid it. Uh, I mean, as some have observed, Peter put two thoughts together that should never go together. No and Lord. Right? If, if, the, if it's Lord, there's no no. And if it's no, well, it's not Lord. There's just no way to work. And this is his mistake. And, and it's a mistake of ignorance, partly, I think, out of not appreciating what Son of God really means. I, I mean, something in there just didn't click for him. I get it. But this is not fundamentally an issue of ignorance. And that's the, the insight I don't want you to miss this morning. This is not Peter just being stupid. He was, but it's not it. This is something deeper. And when you look at Jesus' response, you see what it's really about. Verse 23, he opens up with a rebuke of his own, justifiably so. He starts by telling Peter, get behind me. Now, that's a phrase that's made its way into the vernacular of everyday life. We talk about, get behind me, Satan, you know, to, make, to tell people things. But I don't think that we mean it necessarily the way Jesus did. You know, the way you and I would say it today, get behind me, it's, it's a way of saying, get out of here. Don't, don't put that in front of me. You know, it's, it's more dismissive. But that's not what Jesus meant. It means, in respect to authority, get back to your place. I'm in charge. You're not. Get behind me. Don't expect me to follow you. That's the sense of it. And it's exactly the problem here. Jesus is telling Peter, you have assumed a role and a place of authority that you don't have. And where you should be right now is zipped up and behind me. That's my part. I, I, that, you know, it's the reason I'm not Jesus. But that would have been the way I would have said it. This comment is at the core of Peter's issue. And you can see it already, right? What, is, what does it mean when you usurp authority? When you think yourself having more authority than you really do? What's behind that? It's pride. And look, the least surprising thing I could tell you this morning is that Peter at times suffered from pride. Because it's evident in the Gospels. And Peter has pulled Jesus aside. Even that moment, that body language, is evident of pride. Think about it. When you pull someone aside, in any context, what are you suggesting to the person that you're pulling? That they're accountable to you. It's the natural feeling, right? If I pulled you aside 
to, to, to say something critical to you, right? I'd be implying, I'm the pastor, you're the sheep, you're supposed to listen to the... I mean, you know, it would have that implied feeling. Or if your parent pulls a child aside, or a boss pulls... You know, it's the nature of how we think of authority. That's how Peter conveyed his thought to Jesus. Secondly, Peter invokes the name of God when he speaks about what should happen, which is to say he suggests to Jesus he knows God's plan better than Jesus knew God's plan, even though he also said Jesus was God. It, it's completely backward. Thirdly, he tries to alter the plan. He tells Jesus, forbid this, it's not going to happen, you're not going to die, which is to say he suggests he's a better judge of what would be right than Jesus should be or God would be. Look, friends, that's what pride looks like. If you want to see pride at work, here's a good scene. It's foolishness, it's presumptuousness, and it makes you look ridiculous to other people. Because everyone else can see it. You know what everyone else is thinking when you act out of pride in moments like this? You know what they're all saying to themselves? Who do you think you are? You know, this is not yours to do. So it starts with pride. And Jesus addresses the pride moment right up front. Get behind me. Get back to your place. And then he adds, secondly, Satan. Now, he's not trying to insult Peter here. It's not like he's calling him a name. Uh, He's not trying to shock him either, I don't think. He is speaking in a somewhat literal sense. And that is to say, it's not as though he's saying that you are Satan. I'm not saying Peter was indwelt by Satan. That's not the point. But what he is saying is that Satan did not want Jesus to do what God wanted Jesus to do. In the broader sense, not that that Satan knew about the plan of going to the cross yet. Just in the general idea that there is a goal for God and there's a goal for Satan and they're always the opposite. And so he's telling Peter, effectively... You're tempting me to consider a different path other than the one the Father has appointed for me, and that's the devil's work. Whether you knew it or not. In fact, I'd say most of the time when we do the devil's work, we have no clue. I doubt Peter did. He's acting on behalf of Satan. So if Peter had gotten the goal that Peter wanted in that moment, then he would have been furthering Satan's goals. That's the point. Now here's the irony of this. Satan, at that point in in time, had no clue of the plan himself. In fact, later in the Gospels, we see that Satan's actually the chief agent moving the plan along, indwelling Judas, getting Judas to turn Jesus in. Satan actually wants Jesus to die because at the time, he thought that would help him. Only later does he realize that was his own undoing. So, even though it's kind of funny in the way it turns out, Peter is working to advance Satan's goal by stopping a death, even as Satan in the moment is trying to have it happen. Because God understands things that even Satan doesn't understand, of course. Finally, Jesus tells Peter, you're not setting your mind on God's interests. You only have man's interests in mind. And I'll give you one guess, which man? His own interests. Peter's interests. This is probably the most revealing thing that he says about Peter in this moment. Peter was not thinking about what God wanted. He was just protecting his own interests. And what, are his, what would his interests be in this moment? Think about it. What is Peter protecting in this moment? Look, just a moment earlier, he had been told that he was the chief apostle, effectively, And that this whole plan of what God was doing through Jesus rested on him, at least to a degree. At least in the initial stages. Big man on campus. That's Peter, right? Moreover, with the keys to the kingdom, he knew that he had some plan waiting for him that God was going to use him in a mighty way. Look, you don't hear that from Jesus and not feel special. It's just the nature of the the way it works. And so, in that moment, even though I know Peter didn't get the whole thing necessarily, he knew enough to know that some good was coming, he was at the center of it, and it depended on Jesus. Next thing he hears, this whole enterprise is going to come crashing down in Jerusalem when he dies uh, as a result of persecution. And immediately, what does Peter think? What about me? I'm telling you that based on what I see Jesus saying. That is, his interests were not God's interests. His interest in that moment was a man's interest. And there's no other man that you can name that has any closer concern for Peter than himself. So Peter hated the idea of his friend dying. I'm sure it had some personal element. I'm not cutting that out of the picture here. But Jesus didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, your interests are too much about my life. No, he says it's about man's interests. Peter's ignorance allowed his pride to take control. And in that moment, he was protecting his own interests. But here's the interesting part. He framed that personal concern as if it were God's concern. God forbid. He didn't say, I forbid. He said, God forbid. 
This is maybe the most important insight you could gain if you're someone like me who's, who can deal with pride at times and think that my ideas are God's ideas. We do this all the time, some of us more than others. That is, we assume that what we think is good must be what God thinks is good too. And then we never check back in to find out if that's correct. And we launch off into our own personal agenda with God sort of as veneer. We just kind of paint over our ideas with the name of God and we tell everyone, this is what God wants, this is what God wants. Did you pray? Well, I know this is what he wants. Has he told you that? I'm confident this is what he wants. And we do this. It's just how we think. Peter, I've always described Peter this way. He's a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. You know, he's, he's thought about whether to do it too late. And he should have stayed quiet. He should have stayed behind Jesus. He should have waited for the rest of the plan. Then he would have known why the death was so important. And by the way, as I said, I don't want to pick on Peter. If you look at what he says later in his own writing, it's evident how much he's grown. And so you see at the end of his life, a man who is fully transformed from this guy to a man who is willing to be crucified himself, according to church tradition, in order to, to promote the gospel. This is a guy who made the trip that we're all making. So we can congratulate him when we see him in heaven for, for the discipleship process he engaged in himself. We don't have to pick on him for how it started. But it did have a beginning that we need to understand can be useful to us too. Proverbs in 10, 8, uh, 10, 19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Good advice for me as well as anyone, I'm sure. So what we've just seen is this. His earlier moment of confession was a model. Well, guess what? Here's another model. It just happens to be a negative model. And here's what you learn from this model. First, we need to come to grips with the reality that there is a God and we're not him. And that's easy to say. But the problem is we don't think about it enough sometimes in the day-to-day way in which we follow him. Jesus is not into power sharing. It's not an arrangement. We're supposed to be behind him. We're never supposed to be in front of him. And as easy as it is to say that, I know it's hard sometimes to understand what that looks like for us. We can see what Peter did. We see it in his case. What does it mean to be in front of Jesus for us? Well, there's a lot of ways I could give you an example on that, but let me give you two. And maybe these two will resonate with, with you or someone in the room. If you are not in the habit of asking Jesus what to do before you do it, you are in front of him. Now when I say that, I don't mean that you're going to a deli counter and you're asking Jesus, should it be ham or should it be turkey? I mean, you could do that, but I'm saying it doesn't have to come to that level in order for it to be present in your life. But I am talking about decisions that have meaningful impact on how you serve him, on where you serve him. You know, it usually comes down to calendar. I've found that in the past, people often think it's a money question. Eh, I don't think it's a money issue anymore. Everyone's got more money than they know what to do with. I mean, in many cases. Here's the issue. The issue is time. You ask the average person today, would you like more money or more time? The answer is almost always time. The, the devil has found it a very powerful tool to stop you from maturing in your own walk and serving Christ in your own walk by filling your life with so much stuff. Every hour of your day. If you have kids, well, shoot, that, that's a whole other world all its own, right? All the activities we have for kids and all the stuff that demands that our time there. But even if you don't have kids, you know, between streaming TVs, shows endlessly, and the Internet, and, and just the lifestyle we live now at work, people working 70 hours a week and the like, the enemy's found a way to keep us from growing. He just keeps us busy. And I'm not here to lecture you about your lifestyle. What I'm saying is this. Have you asked Jesus if that's the lifestyle he wants for you? Have you checked in with him on all the decisions that led to the life you now have? If you have, and he's told you everything you're doing is what you're supposed to do, I'm not your judge. I'm glad you're pleasing him. But if you haven't done that, you're like the disciples, I think, at least to the degree that you're saying, I think I know what his plan is. I've just marched out. Let's hope he blesses it. Uh, That's not usually a very satisfying way to work. Uh, That's one way you'll know if you're in front of him. It doesn't require a heart of pride. It doesn't even require a heart to disobey. It just requires ignorance and apathy, a lack of trying. And then here's the second thing to consider. If you're the kind of Christian who always believes you're the exception to the rule, now that's a little bit more unique, but I've seen it, and I think it's worth mentioning. That is, you, in the first case, the person who's never asking Jesus how to live their life and is just making decisions apart from Christ, that's a lack of knowledge. You're not seeking his input. And so you're not acting on that input. That's a lack of knowledge. In this second case, this is a lack of a respect for authority. This is an authority issue if you're the kind of person who says, regular life 
in the church doesn't apply to me. I know everyone else goes to church. I don't need to be that person. I know everyone else shows up for worship and the teaching. I don't need that. I can show up just for the teaching. Or I know that everyone else likes to sing during worship. I'm not a singer. I'm just going to stand there and watch everyone else worship. You do your thing. You go right about Go ahead. But ask yourself, if that's your attitude about following Jesus, I'll pick the rules I like. You're in front of him. And I'm not saying, by the way, that what you do in the building, whether you sing or not, is the, the criteria. I'm just throwing out examples in which there is a style, a pattern, a nature in which the Spirit has been moving His church for centuries. And that style is not arbitrary. It's directed by the Lord for reasons of His own. And yet we stand back and we think, hmm, not for me. Who are you? God forbid, Lord? Right? You're the person who has that bumper sticker that says, Jesus loves you, but I'm His favorite. Right? Somewhere along the way, we just decided we could kind of craft our own version of the church and life in the church and following of Jesus to suit our needs. And Jesus is fine with that. He just rubber stamps what we do anyway, right? Again, that's a very unique thing. I don't know that that's common in every corner of the church. I'm not saying it because I think it is. I'm saying it because if that's you, you needed to hear that. You need to fall in line behind Jesus and try submission for a while and see what that does for you. Try doing what you know he's asked of you to do, even if you don't like it, because there's something about that thing that he's using in your life and you haven't given him the opportunity to show it to you yet. Submission is not a bad thing. Submission is how we move to the place Christ wants us, whatever the context. Now, in all cases, whether it's the first example, the second example, or any other example you want to mention for being in front of Jesus... There is only one way to cure that disease. It's called humility. And humility is never easy to get. It comes from the Lord through a rebuke. That rebuke is usually delivered by trial and failure and correction. And anytime it comes, it involves discomfort. Do you imagine how Peter felt after he got rebuked by the Lord? He's standing there in front of all of his friends. He just got told he's in charge. Next thing he gets told he's Satan. I mean, you think he felt a little foolish? Well, you know what? Jesus was left with no other choice. That was Peter's making. He put himself in that position. And Jesus did the right thing. If you get in front of him and you make that your lifestyle, you should expect a rebuke from him in some fashion. And it'll come through friends or family or experiences in your life or church leaders maybe. Expect it. But here's the secret, friends. When it comes, however it comes, receive it. Show humility because when it happens, it's going to lead you to a better place. All right, that's the first thing we learned. Second thing Peter's experience teaches us is that if you act or speak contrary to God's word, which is what he was doing, even if you do it out of ignorance, you are furthering the enemy's work. You've joined the wrong team. You become like Satan in the sense of Peter here, saying you're doing what Satan prefers. And the most dangerous thing about ignorance is you don't know what you don't know. And so as a result, biblical illiteracy, wherever it is in the church, whether in your life or in the body generally, as it grows, you know what it does in the body? As a result of ignorance, carnality becomes the norm. And sin becomes accepted and and tolerated in the body. And selfishness in the name of God becomes our style of ministry. Everybody takes some little corner of the church and makes it their own and says, this is what God wants and this is what God wants. And you end up with 15 little ministries instead of one community of, of people serving Christ through ministries. We don't want to do that. And believers often don't realize they're doing this. Of course, it's, it's the problem of ignorance that you don't even realize that what you're calling God's desires are actually Satan's desires because you didn't check in with the, the authority to know what his real desire was. And that's how you end up with busybodiness and legalism and false teaching. That's where you get people saying things like, God helps those who help themselves, which, as you know, is not in the Bible. But did you know that's the opposite of the Bible? The Bible says God helps those who know they can't help themselves, and so they turn to him for help. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He frustrates the proud, the Bible says. So that's how you can get to something that is literally the opposite of the Bible, calling it God's, and everyone just says, oh yeah, that's what God thinks. Because no one's checked in to find out if it's true. And you see this every time when a world disaster happens. Let me give you an example, real quickly. When the world sees a world disaster happen, what do they say? If there's a loving God... Why does he let this happen, right? We hear this from people all the time. If you are ignorant, if you're a Christian who's ignorant of Scripture, here's where you do Satan's work without knowing it. You apologize for God. You go back to that person and you say, oh, God was not responsible for that disaster. That's Satan. God doesn't let bad things happen. 
And you think it's God's work. You think that's what God would want you to say. You think you're defending God's honor. And you tell the Bible or the world something that is literally untrue. Do you know when you say that, you're doing the work of the devil? Why? Because you have diminished God's sovereignty and you have misapplied or contradicted his word. Because first, in the case of sovereignty, you're suggesting that God competes with Satan for control of the world. And they're in some cosmic battle. And sometimes the devil wins and sometimes God wins. That's not true. You're making the devil look stronger than he is, which is what he wants you to do. When the Bible actually says this, Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these. He says it to you right now. Name a world disaster that's ever happened in the history of the world. And if I ask you who caused it, the Bible says God, period. Now, you and I can sit here all day and wonder why and be confused about why God wanted it to happen and not understand all that. That is perfectly appropriate. But it is not appropriate to say no and Lord in the same sentence. He did it. He's got a good purpose in it. One day we'll understand it. In the meantime, we cannot change who did it to suit our view of what God should know or God should do. Remember the righteous man Job? Remember how he suffered one calamity after another at the hands of Satan? Do you remember how that book tells you that all of those terrible things came about because God encouraged Satan to go do those things in testing his servant Job? God was the instigator of that through Satan. And he set the limits on what Satan could do. And he promoted Satan to go do it. And in the midst of it, here's Job, who the Bible says was a righteous man, perhaps the most righteous man on earth at that time. He's sitting there going through all this stuff, asking God, why am I doing this? Why, why is this happening to me? What did I do? He questions God. He laments. He cries out to God for explanation. He, he challenges God to justify it. But you know the one thing Job never did? The one thing he never does is curse God or tell God he was wrong. In fact, in one moment in Job, this is what he says, Job thirteen fifteen, Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. I love that. I love that last piece. No matter what you do to me, I'm on your side, but I still want to talk to you about this. All right, that's fair. You can argue with God. That is a perfectly acceptable response to things you don't understand. You can wrestle with God. He's not afraid of that. He's not afraid of that. But no matter what happens, and that includes even if he should take your life or someone's life next to you and you, you wonder why, nevertheless, you trust in him for that because you understand he knows more than you do. You, don't, you can still feel all the feelings. I'm not saying you're supposed to be a robot. But anything less than that kind of response is doing the devil's work. And finally, set your minds on God's interests rather than your own. That's the last piece of this, and it's a fairly obvious one, right? This is really simple. Deny the flesh and adopt God's priorities in place of your own. That's the transforming power of studying his word and walking with him. Peter could not see what God was doing in the moment because he only saw what he wanted. And like Peter, that's our first concern. Our selfish desires compete. This is where you get people in ministry who run after money or sex or pride in some other form, popularity, instead of just staying true to the mission of where they began. Why? Because their interests get more important than God's somewhere along the way, and they run after them. It's a never-ending struggle. We all spend most of our time thinking about ourselves. That's just human nature. But in ministry, we have to figure out how God's interests, His goals, His priorities are more important, and we put those in front of our own. It's a continual process of yielding to the Spirit. Death is, I think, my best example of this one, and I'll be, I'll be finished. And that is because we all worry about dying, right? Everybody's trying desperately to avoid dying. And when death comes near us, we struggle over it. It's natural. But if you live in fear of death, that is, if your priority is surviving in this world as long as you can, rather than the priority of serving for the next world, of readying yourself for the next world. If you have that wrong priority schema in your life, what you start to do is make decisions out of the fear of death rather than out of a fear of God. 
Decisions about what this life gives you instead of what you're preparing for in the life that follows. This life is finite. That one is not. This life will end before you know it. That one never does. Which should get more attention? Which should get more of your time? It's, we all understand the answer to that. But why don't we live like that? Because we keep letting the first one kind of get in the way of the second one. We keep getting the first one in view and we forget the bigger one. Next time, when we move through the rest of this chapter and into the next, you're going to see Jesus talks to Peter... And as he moves past this moment, he begins to work on this bad thinking. You can glance ahead, look at verse 24. Jesus tells Peter, if you want to be a disciple of mine, you have to deny yourselves the things you want. You have to deny this life. You have to say no to things. Following Jesus is a lot of saying no to yourself, even as you say yes to him. Why? Because here's the reality. Here's where this all ends. You are either serving Christ or you're serving yourself. And if you're serving yourself, you're serving Satan indirectly. You could sum up... The third point with my favorite phrase, live with eyes for eternity. Have that attitude of what's coming next and put that in the forefront of your mind. So when Jesus talked to Peter and rebuked him, he said, stop, get back in line, stop doing the devil's job for him, start setting your mind on what God wants. You know, that's some pretty good advice right there. Let's all get back in line behind Jesus. Let's stop doing the devil's job for him by our ignorance and let's start setting our minds on what God cares about before we care about our own needs and watch how that transforms your life look at what good comes from it all right let's pray heavenly father we thank you for that brief reminder perhaps for some of us father it's been a moment of conviction and if that's the case father i pray for those hearts that have been turned by this speaking of your word that they would have the courage to step another step forward in obedience Help us change priorities, Father, if it's our calendar, if it's our checkbook, if it's something else in our life that we just haven't put in in your hands and asked you to direct for us. Give us the courage to do that now. And then, Father, as we do, show us why it was so valuable and important that we do it so that we'd be encouraged to continue. For those of us, Father, who are following you as best we can, help us, Father, to help others do the same, to be that witness to someone else in this body. And continue to grow us, Father, through men and women who care about you and your word. We want to grow, Father, so we can do more to serve you in that strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.